everyone and welcome back to Tech Talk. Today we're going to be talking about big data, including Facebook's data policies, Palantir Technologies' Wall Street debut, and where we think big data is going in the future. Hayden, what's your perspective on Facebook's data policies? So, for a while, Facebook has been very ad-focused, where they take all this, they consume all this information about us, They'll do it through their apps, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and everything else that they own, but those are the three major ones everyone uses. They used to, for a while, be able to take information when we even weren't using those apps. However, recently, Apple, with their, I want to say it's the iOS 14 update, they made a change to their data collection system and are no longer to collect data when not using those apps. So sometimes when you're using an iPhone, you'll see now that when you want to share a picture or go to your pictures from another app, let's say you're sending a picture of a t over text, it's say allow all photos, allow specific photos, or just don't allow at all. That was a recent change that they made um, when it goes into using information from other apps. And so Facebook is no longer able to collect information at such scale um, and when you're not using apps. It wasn't huge to their ad revenue. It may be huge to us, at around like a two, three billion. But for Facebook alone, it's it's very minimal to how much it actually produces them for them revenue-wise. The real issues with Facebook now these days is how they're using their data, and is it just a form for people to make a demographic to target when using their ad system or their uh, ad platform, or how are they using their uh, information on us? Are they selling it to people or are they just keeping it as a, uh, a silhouette of, it, of our information? I find it interesting because Zuckerberg publicly stated that Facebook does not sell information from their users. But it seems ironic when you think about the fact that they have topic data, which is one of their platforms where they analyze users' responses to events, to brands, and essentially all this data goes to marketers so they can analyze customer sentiment to recent events and to brand identity and the like. So I find it very contra contradictory that somehow Zuckerberg stating that they're not selling user data, yet on the other hand, they're using this for marketers. So what, they're just doing this for free? I know that their ad platform is huge and I... I imagine they sell data, but Mark Zuckerberg, like you said, he just publicly states that he doesn't sell people's information. I'm, I believe that's probably somehow misleading, where it's like he sells the silhouette of information, which I think that's going to be the direction of big data going forward. Because Europe had passed a law, or the EU had passed a law, um, one, two, three years ago. California passed a very similar law where. If you don't want your information to be stored by these big data companies like Google and Facebook, you can request your information from them and you can also delete it. And I think that's a good step in the right direction for people who just don't want their information to be stored or um, to be collected. And I think that's a good policy to have. Um, I wish or hope that companies that do collect big data give you the ability to opt out somehow it's not very publicized these days if you can do that. And I think that's a setting or a situation that should be more vocalized with these big data companies. But for the topic of Facebook, I think what they do with the data is way to collect 
demographic information and advertise to people who match the specific demographics people want to target ad-wise. Over the summer, there was a antitrust hearing, which I think we may talk about that more in the future. These big tech companies are not in a good spot with the U.S. government, as well as everyone's just general consensus of how big these tech companies are getting and what they can do as a whole. But for Facebook's big issue is how much data that they collect and what they're using with it. Facebook is, according to Mark Zuckerberg's opening statement of the testimonies or the hearings, out of the every dollar spent on ad revenue or internet marketing, Facebook makes 10 cents or a little less than 10 cents of every dollar spent on ad revenue. And the big one is actually Google. Facebook is getting to the point where it's also very specific. However, I will say they're opening the statements everyone made during those hearings were putting themselves in good lights, taking the the spotlight off of them because who wants legislature put on them? Yeah, I think that one of Zuckerberg's strengths is uh, ambiguity. (laughs) The man really knows how to make a generalized statement saying, oh, we're not selling private information. That could be, oh, you're not selling the private information that's only visible to friends on Facebook, but you can still sell the silhouette, essentially, and the basic demographic information and the responses without showing the private information of the individual, including names and identities. And also, the Europe thing, um, I know that there was an arrangement originally called the Privacy Shield. Um, which was between the U.S. and Europe, and it allowed data to flow basically freely between the EU and the U.S. And in July, the high court in the EU uh, uh, redacted this privacy shield. So now Facebook's been threatening to exit the European market on the grounds of the inability to share data between the U.S. and the EU. How much data are they trying to restrict Facebook from sharing if they're willing to just pull out of the EU? That's, I don't know how much money Facebook makes in Europe, but I imagine that's still so much money that they're just going to give up that way. Yeah, I think that it's going to be interesting in the international realm because the U.S. is kind of a safe haven. Well, not really, actually. It's more the opposite because data is shared so freely, but we're the most like lackadaisical when it comes to data policies and data privacy. So a lot of the international markets with these big tech giants, they're facing big regulations and pushbacks because they don't wanna be involved with an international company that's dominated in the US market where data runs freely. I will say, I think the US is not great on putting legislature on technology. Cause if you watch the hearings or listen to them, however you pay attention to them, you can listen to the people on these committees or boards that are going to be putting laws in place on big tech, they don't have the best understanding of what's actually happening. I remember there was a time where they were discussing how some software works and the process of how apps are made. And he was essentially just describing the app store to Tim Cook, which I imagine we we all know how <laughs> that- I, If I had to make a bet, I would say Tim Cook knows how the app store works. Yeah, he was like <laughs> describing how the app store works and Tim Cook was just like, yes, that, that's Correct. how we, that's how we run. Correct, thank you for the generalized overview. Um, but another thing people were saying, they were confusing how data was being collected as well as what platforms 
people were being censored on. This is another a topic for another day, but they were just confusing every person for another big company. I think they confused Mark Zuckerberg for Twitter um, in the antitrust hearings over the summer. And I was thinking to myself, they, pe- the people who are regulating this, they have much more things going on than just this as well as well as whatever else is going on in uh whatever other policing legislatures they're a part of like they're all politicians that were doing this and so they have things going on in their own states but they were having issues describing the technology to the people literally in charge of the big four tech companies which I, some that's how they described it as i would say that they're missing microsoft because Microsoft is never part of the antitrust hearings, which I think is super weird. Uh, I mean, kudos to them for somehow dodging that bullet. Yeah. <laughs> they must have just not looked into their subsidiaries. <laughs> Probably not. The U.S. is not so great at picking people to govern big tech. Yeah, and now, as we can see in California, there's a new proposition that's been proposed, Proposition 24, and that would increase the privacy for individuals in terms of data. So it's interesting how it's so intertwined with politics right now and the censorship aspect is so intertwined with politics because you have, oh, fake news, like reporting fake statistics. Do you censor that? Do you not? So there's really this intersection now between the political sphere and the big data sphere, unsurprisingly. (laughs) It's really hard to pick out what you should censor off of these information platforms. Like, I think all platforms these days are how people spread information. It's how people consume news and how just people speak freely, quote-unquote. But it's kind of interesting to see what this all leads to when the antitrust hearings, or the hearings are over, when the antitrust laws get proposed or regulation gets proposed for these big tech companies. Yeah, and it's interesting, speaking of the government too, and kind of the intersection between the government and big data, uh, Palantir just had their debut on Wall Street. They went public through a direct listing, actually, instead of an IPO. It's interesting why I don't necessarily understand why they would go public. I guess for one, doing it um, under a direct listing, you know, they're getting the option, the shareholders have the option to liquidate their shares and sell them off. And they're avoiding the discounts that would be implicit in creating new shares to sell. So they don't have to also give out this fat fee to a bank in order to do that. So they are increasing their capital in the company, giving the option to sell the shares. And I think that it also may have been a move to come off as transparent because they've received so much backlash on being so private and essentially selling data and giving a data platform to the government. So I think that it might have been a move as well to try to inspire confidence in consumers to come across like a transparent data company. Palantir has been around since like the early 2000s in the San Francisco, Silicon Valley area. It's started by Peter Thiel and I forget who else, but I just know he's part of it and he's somehow widely recognized in uh, Silicon Valley. I think Peter Thiel and I think Palantir are a bit overhyped, especially given what's happened with, I guess not their IPO, just like their debut on Wall Street, but the stock just went down and from like a financial standpoint or like I don't know. I like watching stocks sometimes just to see how they do. They've had a long time to make money and to grow as a company, and they truly haven't. They they pretty much lose money and aren't 
too profitable for how long they've been around. From a business standpoint or just like as a company, that's not something you want for a company. You want it to grow, you want it to, I would say make more money, but that's not like the, the core concept of a business sometimes. It's to achieve things or to solve a solution or solve a problem, have a solution. They don't entirely do that enough to grow. And I think that's an issue. I mean, yeah, just in 2019, they did 743 in revenue and they still had a net loss of 580 million. And just in the first six months of 2020, they had revenue of 481 and they still had a net loss of 164 million. So it's ironic considering their numbers again, <laughs> see this all the time in the stock market are not reflective at all of their price. Just when they debuted, they debuted at, I believe, um, $10 a share or their reference price was $7.25 a share. And now it's already up like 30 minutes into trading. It was 50% up from its reference I price. I think that <laughs> part of the reason that it was valued so highly, I believe they did a private market valuation as well, which valued the company at $20 billion. <laughs> and let's keep in consideration that they did 581 in a net loss in 2019 and they were valued at 20 billion. But I think that the biggest reason for that extremely high valuation was the fact that their biggest financial backer is the Central Intelligence Agency. And I think it's extremely unique to be able to get those large contracts with government agencies and have that kind of financial backing. But it also poses the question of whether consumers would put their money into that and trust that. Palantir is not a company that has much a public interface. No. It's not like Apple where they ha we have phones, we have physical hardware that consumers all around the US or all around the world use, or Microsoft where they use Office Suite. Like you said, they're government contracts. They're not many people are going to know about them unless you are probably A, in Silicon Valley, B, are just interested in whatever happens on Wall Street, or C, you read too many books and you come across the name Peter Thiel. And or you're like us and we just have our head in the news too much. That's true. I think it's ironic though, because it isn't consumer facing. And typically when you do a direct listing, the companies that are most likely to do direct listings are typically consumer facing. So that's ironic as well, but I think that the fact that they did do it through a direct listing also gives them almost power because of the volatility that's implicit in that, because uh, the price and the capital that they're going to get from selling those shares, it's entirely dependent on supply and demand because there's no underwriting and there's no setting a price for new shares. So that volatility is going to get them a lot of cash inflow. <laughs> but it's not good for investors. Yeah, I don't remember if you said this, but they didn't create any new stock, so they didn't even raise money. I thought when I first learned that they were going to, I thought they were going to IPO or raise capital when they were listing, but that wasn't even the case. So I, I thought they were just going to fund their, their losing spree. Because <laughs> I was like, I, I went over it, I, I looked and I was like, they're losing money, okay. Why would they want to IPO? because they want more money to lose or just fund whatever <laughs> they have going on. I I don't entirely know what they do. But I do know that they hold a lot of government contracts and I'm also going to imagine that they have more jobs in San Francisco as well because... They're partially commercial, partially government, but I'm pretty sure that about 50, 
of their revenue stream is entirely from government contracts. Knowing Peter Thiel, he's like part of the circle. I'm pretty sure he was part of PayPal. Mm -hmm. And PayPal is very notorious for after being sold, all 10, 12, I, I want to say it was 12 founders of PayPal or people who were working at the time at PayPal that sold. They went on to do pretty impressive things. Some of them being Elon Musk, some of them being, uh, I forget the guy who started LinkedIn, dudes who founded YouTube, um, Peter Thiel, and there was way more. There's people who went on to be executives at Google and Facebook, and I feel like that's what Silicon Valley is known for, this giant interworking or network of big tech companies and people shifting from big tech company to big tech company from going from paypal to facebook or google and i would i imagine it's all always nepotism like pretty much how anyone gets jobs these days it's who you know and i guess how you know them as well and in silicon valley it's wait what nepotism is still a thing yeah it is. <laughs> no idea <laughs> and i would say silicon valley is where it's not where it started, but where it was truly perfected. I disagree. <laughs> I think Silicon Valley is a place where people come to invent themselves. It's entrepreneurial. You start from nothing. You build up a company. Granted, once you have gotten your foot in the door in Silicon Valley, it's nepotism from there on. But I think that it provides the opportunity to reinvent or just invent yourself from the beginning, being a nobody. I can get behind that. I think both are very true. Um, it's like a life cycle stage. In the in the early and growth stage, it's not nepotism. In the shakeout and maturity and decline phase, that's where nepotism comes in. <laughs> okay. I definitely see both. And I don't know what new location will spawn after Silicon Valley. What's going to be the hot spot for entrepreneurial growth, I guess. It's going to be interesting to watch. see it's how it's going to be in the up. middle of Kansas. Kansas? <laughs> Just watch. <laughs> Why Kansas? Like, just because it's in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Cheap land. I don't know. Maybe. Sorry to Kansas there, but um, I don't think the uh, real estate of Silicon Valley nor the taxes in California are very helpful to tech startups. But I think one of the biggest reasons that Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley as well is because Stanford's right there. And uh, you can't replicate a Stanford in the middle of camp. You can't replicate a Stanford anywhere, honestly. And it is, I don't think you can. And it, <laughs> making a face. <laughs> yeah, I'm like smirking. <laughs> because it's, Stanford is known for their technology department and they, their entrepreneurial department. And I don't think that another school could replicate that. But they're only known for that because of the people that went to that school. The people in Silicon Valley... Stanford only became known for that after uh, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and I want to say Peter Thiel went to Stanford. I have no idea about his educational background, but I feel like schools only gain notoriety after the people that went there. It's not that schools have notoriety because of they exist. I guess long-standing duration is a big factor. And I would say Harvard definitely has that as well. Or that's where my opinion of that comes from. Just Harvard's long-standing success. In order for a college or a university to get notoriety, it comes from the people that go there first. 
Yeah, I think that obviously, yes, it's a symbiotic relationship um, between Silicon Valley and Stanford, but I think that the history part, you can't replicate. You can't replicate the history of Stanford and its involvement with Silicon Valley and the technology sphere. Prior used to be New York, and now it's moved to the East Coast, or West Coast, Silicon Valley, that area, San Francisco. So maybe it may be Kansas afterwards. I just think that millennials and Gen Z, they're more uh, cost conscientious, and the reality is that these kids starting off with no money aren't going to be able to build a startup from scratch in Silicon Valley. The prices are far too high for any kid to have a startup there. When you think about 30, 40 years ago, when a lot of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs started their companies, the cost of living, the taxes were a lot different than they are today. That's true. If as a group of these kids starting something, they all have part-time jobs and all live together, then they can reduce all their expenses to do that. But that's not ideal for five years as long as they're still working on it for whatever cost that they incur working on whatever project they, they have. It's still manageable to some capacity in every location. It just becomes a, a networking game. In terms of where big data is going, though, I think in the short term, like talking about next six months to a year, it's going to be heavily politically focused. Like having these companies like Palantir, they are going to be all over the big data because as elections come up and we saw what happened in the 2016 election and how much of a problem data privacy was and hacking was, I think that big data is going to play such a big role in the political sphere in the next six months to a year. I think so. I think it's definitely going to get striked down. It's going to have legislature put on it to reduce how how much information that Facebook and Palantir get to have and how they use it as well. Mark Zuckerberg's come to out to say that over the two weeks coming up to the election that he doesn't want to do any political ads, which I applaud him for that. Which is ironic considering they ran a social experiment. Yeah. Literally the I voted social experiment on Facebook to encourage voting, which isn't necessarily um, taking like one side of politics, but it still is being involved in the political sphere. They kept track of who was public about voting and being vocal about it and the the metrics of who clicked on like the sticker you said yeah basically user engagement via um a voting initiative so they saw that 20 percent of people who uh, saw um, a friend or an acquaintance post on facebook and i voted sticker also shared that same sticker right afterwards it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out and what legislature gets put onto it to reduce how effective it is and how much information they truly have on everybody. Or I believe that an effective way it will come down to is they'll make a silhouette of information of us. It will remove our probably at most our names, but it'll still have everything else about you, your gender, income, um, probably whatever topics you follow and are interested in, and they'll categorize that to some capacity. I, I think Zuckerberg would probably sell it. And I think all all the other big tech companies would sell that as well. And whatever other information that they can get on people, that that will most likely be an effective case. I do think that people should be able to opt out of this as well. And they should be able to delete any information that these companies have on them. 
if they don't want to. And that's a very fair point to have for both the consumer as well as the big tech companies. Yeah, I think that also we're going to see in the short term in attempting to try to recover the economy after COVID and after all the uncertainty that's been in the economy, I think that things like topic data, which again is Facebook's uh, data analytics platform that analyzes users' responses to events, more specifically, that will be the most useful. I think that that data is going to be used as well in trying to help recover the economy after the immense effects of COVID. And I think lastly, and this is going to be a more long-term uphill battle for the tech giants, is going to be that international regulation with taking away the privacy shield between the EU and the US and with the EU threatening to impose harsher restrictions on data sharing, I think that's going to be an uphill battle for tech giants in the future. Yeah, as a whole, big data is heavily controversial and how much privacy people want. Sometimes it's information that seems minimal to share and sometimes it gets pretty personal of what these big companies have. And I look forward to seeing like how the US as well as the EU put regulation on these uh, these methods of collecting information as well as what information they end up collecting as a whole and how they use it. If you have any opinions on the matter, please let us know. DM me or Alyssa and we'd like to thank you for listening to us today. We hope you come by and listen to us next week. Thanks for tuning in.